Front Lounge with Congos is brought to you by Congos. It's just us at this time. We don't have sponsors. Uh, we're growing this thing. So if you enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends. That's how you can help us keep it going and help it grow to maybe one day we get some real sponsors and we can sell you that shit. Hello and welcome again to The Front Lounge with Congos. Today, our guest, I feel like almost doesn't need an introduction because we've been talking about him on the last nine. We have our good friend and tour manager, audio engineer, the list will go on, we'll get to that, Michael Quinn, or Mick as we call him. Welcome. Oh, hi. <laughs> Michael Francis Quinn, hmm. born in Glasgow, right? Do you need my social security number? <laughs> no, I know that one. Oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> You can say it, nobody will understand it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to like re-listen to that in my head to hear what you just said. But um, if you ha- can't tell already, he's from Scotland. And so if you don't understand, I'm sorry. Fuck, it's your problem. <laughs> there, will, there will not be a transcript. <laughs> uh, well, welcome, Mick. Um, why don't we start by sort of giving a little backstory about how we met and what we mm. do together. You know, our our side of the story is... Uh, we played in your bar. You, you're co-owner of the Rogue Bar in Scottsdale, Arizona, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how we met. You were sort of hanging out and working the the soundboard and stuff. You were off tour at that time, but that's where we met. And why don't you tell your side of the story? Because it's kind of fun to hear like your yeah. you know, other people's perspective. I can't remember what show it was, but I remember you guys coming down with your Sprinter van stacked with gear too too early <laughs> the bar's open all day and we don't really, we don't close during the day for for sound checks and whatnot and i'm pretty sure you guys were there when the sun was still up and all the and all the locals were just screaming and whining and you had way too much gear for the room but it worked out well your dad was there he'd, he'd one of the first like mixing tablets i'd seen outside of an arena at that point yeah, I think I actually met Mick before all of you because hmm. Mick's wife Anamique was putting the show together. For, it was, I'm pretty sure, New Year's of 2011. Oh, was it the New Year's show? Or, so 2010 going into 11 or 11 going to 12, I can't exactly remember. Hmm. And I went to go meet her at some liquor store hmm. like just, that happened to be between where we both lived to pick up flyers. Okay. And I think I have a scan of one of those flyers and maybe we'll throw it up there. And you were there with her and I didn't know you were Scottish at the time. Talked that got us talking, and then we. I remember wow. just hours after the gig, you and basically our dad talking. Yeah, I remember you guys driving the van up and shouting to get your dad back in and going, Are you up? Get in a van. <laughs> and it was just, we were just talking. How you were it? in UK land. The yeah. reminiscence, oh, yeah. well, you know, there's oh, yeah. hours of UK reminiscence. Come on, dad, the gig's over. <laughs> <laughs> and we were standing there talking about Tesco. It was great. I, I, I feel like we were pioneering the wireless mixing thing because the, mm-hmm. you could use the Yamaha. I remember these numbers are all going to be irrelevant to you all, but you could use the Yamaha 01 V96, which is a 19 inch rack unit mixer mm-hmm. and then you could get uh, any cheap PC and a Silex USB router, router. and then yeah, that just took about six months well, of research to finally yeah. make that so, work let, but let's talk about what we're talking about so you said we had too much gear which is our it's our um, classic MO, MO is well, like yeah, we show I mean, up to any of it doesn't matter what size of venue is we have too much gear It's we've always been that way and basically it started because we we would go into these venues and you're relying on that house sound guy. Oh, yeah. And our setup was a little more complicated than 
most bands, you know, just because we were gearheads. Hmm. And uh, so we decided, well, let, how can we control this? And you go down that rabbit hole and it's like, okay, we need this, we need that. And we ended up with our own mixing board, our own mics and all this stuff that we would carry into even these small little venues. And it, you know, in our opinion, it was worth it because we could control it. But, you know, we didn't know. You never know how good the house sound guy is. Oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not Disney for doing it. I think it was a great idea. I do think it's kind of funny, though, that you know, in order to avoid using the house sound guy, we came across the guy who ended up being our sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what's funny? You say we brought too much gear to that. That was our scaled back version because prior to that, before we went wireless, like Danny was saying, and didn't mm. f- figured out this system, uh, we had a Tascam DM4800 oh, you took that, that we literally used to bring in, and you know the size of that wow. desk, uh, and put it on stage a lot of times. Oh, so man. we played the Viper Room here in L.A., with that desk on stage, running our own snakes across there, and people literally thought we were mad, they must have which loved we you. were. I do yeah. actually think the quality of Sound Guy has gone up in general around the country. The local, like, and, and uh, the last we, ten years, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe it's also the the user friendliness of gear. People are not trying to figure out a patch bay for their first time. <laughs> uh, the, the, the cost of equipment's come down considerably. Yeah, I guess I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's one of the major things. Yeah, because when the, when we were starting those gigs, it was just fucking horrendous yeah i mean think an sm58 for example was a hundred and something bucks yeah. back then and it's still a hundred and something bucks now yeah but right. the value of money's yeah, yeah yeah sm58 that's the microphone you're talking into right now it's actually yeah and it smells okay too <laughs> <laughs> well, well that's the one mo uses i'm surprised oh, it doesn't smell like I salmon say that. <laughs> can you explain why microphones i don't know a lot of people that don't play on stage especially when you go into these old bar gigs mm. where they're using the same mic for everybody and you yep. see even comedians do this they walk up on stage bring a alcohol swab wipe the microphone yeah good on them because it's all stuck to the foam inside the grill yeah, yeah. that's just a topical make you feel better maneuver all the shit's inside it yeah so you get rid of the whatever might come into contact with your lips but you're still just smelling whatever the last 400 people have the wor- breathed into there the worst one was helping my dad out when I was a kid doing all the gigs in the Irish pubs because Guinness is the worst thing to spit in a microphone the next day <laughs> it was howling man you wouldn't believe it he used to carry his own mics too but him and his mate would drink 20 pints of Guinness between the two of them in a night and the next day the, the mics would still be wet and smelling of last night's Guinness it was howling man <laughs> that's funny that's when I started carrying my own mic with me everywhere so tell us a little bit about that how did you what was the, your first foray into the world of audio and touring and all that well, God, like the man. very first I know it starts early with you starts in the crib really I was a baby my, my parents were always doing music and theatre and dance and all sorts of stuff like that so I was there's pictures of me in the pram as they're painting book flats on a stage and things falling over on the buggy and going oh shit is he okay but, <laughs> um, so yeah I mean the fir- my first foray is long before I even had any concept of memory but huh. so every, every time I was always really embarrassed by my dad doing all these gigs all the time you know, I, I hated to be there because I was, you know, I was like, your dad's great and all that. I'm like, nah, he's just a dick. He's just my dad. <laughs> <clears throat> but, um, yeah, but he would drag me along because, you know, he didn't really know exactly wherever they went. He was the left goes into the left speaker, right goes into the right speaker, and then a the cable joins the two speakers together, right? You can make a loop. No, that's not how you do it. Um, <clears throat> so I was always the guy that kind of read the manual that nobody else did because I was bored, at my te- bored to tears in the back. Uh, and I learned how to do it. Also, I would start fixing all the problems and, you know, I don't know, my grandfather had a, used to have a hi-fi shop, so he had a bunch of old hi-fi gear in the attic. I'd play with that all the time. And sure, so I you were one of, those, one of those kids who just 
naturally wanted to know how things work. Oh, you man, wanted to fix things. You dismantled the vacuum cleaner. Dismantled all the calculators. My mum my mom recently gave me the, the book of, you know, when I was first born, like all the prenatal and postnatal stuff and the first six months of baby's life and what, and then the first two, three years. And then it was like, oh, Michael started dismantling the calculator. Dismantled, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, two years old. I remember you saying this, that they were like, Upset, well, not upset, but like, oh boy, we've got one of those kids that takes vacuum cleaners apart, but then you fix the vacuum but then cleaner. Then ultimately I learned to put it back together. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, oh, whoa, this could be useful. It, it did take a few goes. I've destroyed a few vacuums before I got it right. <laughs> You're an auto dickhead. <laughs> uh, well, what's the old saying? You've got to break some eggs to make an omelette. You've got to break some vacuum cleaners to get the house clean. Well, that's it. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, the vacuum cleaner was broken in the first place. I may just have broken it more. But, you know, <laughs> ultimately, I got it going. So we, well, pl- we played that gig in 2011 or whatever I was saying it was. And I think we all, it was probably as early as that that in the back of our head, we thought, okay, well, if we ever got this band actually going, yeah. Mick is something we would definitely like to bring out with us because we learned from you you know most people meet a sound guy at a bar and a lot of times they don't realize that that's kind of a side gig for them a lot of times because we yeah. found out from you that you were actually more of a road guy and we found out who you've been working with which is can you give us a brief list of the bands you'd been out with when was that 2010 yeah so that would have been was that still jet that'd have been the end of jet i suppose Just right so how long were you with jet uh that whoa that's the first show I did with them was in 2003 and at Fuji Rock in Japan <clears throat> um, I just helped out I happened to be there and then I took a I was working with another band at the time a band called The Music who I'd been with since 2001 um, I stayed on with The Music and then when The Music kind of tied, wrapped up and went back in to make another record I went back out with Jet on the Oasis tour in the US and that was like two, three months so that was 2005 mm-hmm. and basically then they went in and record but I was basically with Jet from 2005 to 11 10 or 11 when they went on my ears it's funny some, some people listening I think are going to be like how old is Mick because you know you've been because I was born in 1980 I'm not that yeah, old yeah no I'm, I'm saying they're going to be young, wondering how you've been touring for how long and with all these bands but you've basically been touring since you're what 15, 16 yeah my, my first like tour which was only a couple of shows was um, July 95 Jeez. Jeez. So, yeah. so 15 years old, yeah. Yeah, it was it July 96? July 96, it was just before my 16th birthday. Huh. So it was 15, technically. That's crazy. Well, we'll come back to the Oasis <laughs> in our brothers <laughs> section. Oh, yeah. But we still have pieces of gear that have that we now pull on the road with us that have got jet all yeah. over them. You know, and yeah. that's how it does. Like, things move with people and... Uh, well, that we, was didn't, like, we didn't steal their gear. It was mixed, no, just, it was yeah. mixed gear. <laughs> had just it's, it's technically still their gear if they want to pay for the rental and all the storage on it for the last ten years. But you know. <laughs> <clears throat> no, we were trying to get rid. I mean, it's the same thing. Whenever a band kind of puts a big pause on stuff, and you, you know what it's like, you end up with so much stuff you you've got no place to store it anymore because most of the time the gear's out. But when it all comes back home again, you realize you don't have a big enough cupboard. So yeah. like, we need to try so and sell it, but that was 2008. Nobody was buying anything worth the money, so I just kept it all and tried. And with the intention of selling it down the road or just buying it off of them, but I haven't heard from them since. I know they're back out in the road now, so I'll talk to them. Oh, soon really? Enough. Yeah. How did you go from taking vacuum cleaners apart to going on tour? You know, and happening happening to be right. in Japan. Right. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Um, so yeah, from doing shows with my parents when I was embarrassed by them all um, I got to know all the local technical people and I was the spoiled little brat they didn't want around but eventually I got a bit older and started playing in bands with my friends well one band with my friends 
And uh, there was a local community centre, like youth centre, purpose-built youth centre, where there was a rehearsal studio. You'd go re- rehearse for 50p. And then we would put gigs on there. And that was that was great, man. That was so much fun. And then, lo and behold, work experience came around in fourth year at high school. And you had to go find a job for a week. Um, that's part of the curriculum in high school? You have to get yeah, a, yeah. a year... Like your last year of high school, you have to get a job? Yeah, for a week, yeah, in November. Every school in Scotland does it. I'm sure they do it in England too. Huh. Um, but yeah, it's part of the curriculum. You have to, for one week in fourth year. Fourth year is the, the last of your elective years, I suppose. And fifth and sixth year are like your higher studies where you go into, that's to get you into university if you want to go there. But fourth year, that's the last. After fourth year, you can leave, you can leave school and go into the, the wide world. So they want to try and get you some, I don't know, what would you call it? Skill in the, mo- in the out in the, the big big world. Yeah, the real world. Yeah, so the school would put up job. It was like going to the job center back in the day. Loads of notes stuck on a board, and you go and pick a job, and then go and apply for it, and go for an interview huh. with the school guidance counselor or whatever. But all the jobs then were like you know the local supermarket or the the big industrial complex down the road or HMV the the, the record store. And I was like, I don't want to work in any of these places. And you know, guidance counselors say if you if you have your own idea or a good suggestion, we'll definitely consider it. And my dad was like, you should go to the studio they were rehearsing. So he put me, he put that he talked to the guy at the studio, put that forward. He agreed to it all. The guys council said that was fine, and lo and behold, that was me. I was off. It was a rehearsal studio, or a recording studio. It was a rehearsal studio yeah. at the time. Yeah, it's the biggest rehearsal studio in the UK huh. still. What is that guy's name again? Steve Shane. Steve Shane, yeah, because uh, the French spelling of Shane, though. Yeah, I remember Steve Shane is a legend in the in the Scottish audio world. With uh, when we met Frankie Fingers up the road, who's the yeah Steve Shane is definitely a legend in, in the UK and certainly the Scottish music scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah, who's uh, Frankie Fingers? Frankie, I always think it's Frankie, funny whenever you're talking with Scottish people. It's they got a nickname. They've always yeah. got a cool nickname. If you've been in the Viper Room, then you must have met. Yeah, him. he he was at one of our first Viper Room shows. Oh, he was okay. the house sign guy. Now he does sound at Black Rabbit Rose and a bunch of other places. Okay. here in LA, and he <laughs> Mick and he met, and they were both drunk reminiscing about <laughs> <No>. scotland <laughs> and yeah it's difficult enough understanding one scottish guy so then another scottish guy talking about everybody's got a nickname too it's not like steve it's it's you know whatever yeah so you you were in glasgow but way in east kilbride right which is that's that's where i was that's where i grew up i was born in rutherglen which is in between the two because I remember when we were in Glasgow, you gave us all a bit of a history lesson of, mm. about it. And the thing that stuck out of my head, for whatever reason, was the ice cream wars. Oh, and man, yeah. someone was saying, that doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> and your line was, they weren't fighting with ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So wasn't. it's a fairly rough city. I mean, yeah, man, how, how, how in Europe were you... In in, involved in that anyway? I don't mean like, were you in a gang? Like, was it a rough childhood or were was, you fairly was, sheltered from that? So East Kilbride's kind of like the middle class town, the suburban middle class town that most people in Scotland take the piss out of. And <laughs> rightly so. Sure. <laughs> uh, the majority of Scotland's working class and East Kilbride's like one peg above that, I suppose. And, you know, you always yeah. put down the guy above you. So, yeah, but honestly, growing up in... I was the kind of tail end of it, I suppose, because it's dying out a little bit more. It's still quite dangerous, but not as bad as it was in the 70s. Um, which I wasn't alive in, but no, you couldn't get away from it. There was no way. It was always rough. There was there was always an underpass you couldn't go down. You wouldn't go past that forest. You wouldn't go down that street. You wouldn't go to that neighbourhood. Yeah, you, you just wouldn't do it. You couldn't go to school without with with wearing blue jeans if you were in a Catholic school. You couldn't go to that school if you wore green. You know, you'd get beaten up. Yeah, just get straight beaten up. Yeah. And even then, like even in our twenties, walking down the, walking in the city centre, there's an alleyway. It's called Mitchell Lane. 
it's just a shortcut through. It's right by Central Station. You'll have been you've you've walked past it a hundred times, but come nightfall. I always walk down that street, but I guess I'm a bit bigger than most dudes. And half of my friends have been mugged in that street at like nine o'clock, just taking the shortcut to the train station. I think this is another reason you probably clicked with our dad because it was a very similar thing for him growing up in Johannesburg in the 50s where hmm. he was you know, he, he grew up fine. He had a, a good upbringing and all that and a good kind of basically sheltered life. But at the same time, there were just... It was a different world of violence where you just couldn't walk certain streets without the imminent threat of just getting beaten up. So, yeah. Well, it's because he was Greek and the other and the Afrikaans didn't like anyone who wasn't yeah. well, we Afrikaans. We, we had neighborhood gangland warfare going on the whole time. You know, I, I grew up in Westwood and then moved to Newlandsmuir, which was a little bit fancier. But right next to between the two was Green Hills and next to that was White Hills. And it was Moss Nuke and all other areas too in Westwood and the Murray, the older areas of East Kilbride. And there, they were they had some tough crews. Basically, when Glasgow was at its worst in the seven in the you know post war and all the way through the seventies, the city was way overcrowded. So what they did was built these new towns. They built five of them back in the forties. East Kilbride was one of the first in nineteen forty seven, and they basically took the projects of Glasgow, the, the really rough people that live right in the middle of the city, and pushed them out to these new towns. Well, that'll, that'll fix it, right? So basically half the neighbourhood was affluent, suburban, somewhat middle-class families trying to get a, a foothold and raise their kids a good way, and the rest was like the shit from town. They got pushed out there. And right. hopefully them integrating with them will make things better. Well, not necessarily. It mostly went to the worst. So That's interesting. When you go to Glasgow and England in particular, and I was just watching that uh, Beatles documentary, or the George Harrison documentary, the war, when they say the war in England, it kind of has a whole different context than it has in America because mm-hmm. they actually saw it on their land. You know, oh, obviously yeah. America played their part in World War II, yeah. <laughs> fairly big one. Sure, but, but they didn't really get bombed. No, they didn't, there was no attack on mainland America. So it's such a part of the consciousness, particularly for you're talking about like for your parents' generation. Like, yeah. that was, it's, you, you can't imagine having lived through that and then the remnants of that for decades. Well, and you still see it. I mean, it's still, you still can see bombed out. Yeah, my parents were born after the war, but my grandparents lived through it right. in the Second World War. But they definitely lived in that. They grew up in rations, you know. Mm. They, right. they, they did have to deal with all of that. So while they didn't see it firsthand, they certainly lived with the, the aftermath of it, which lasted for a long time. The whole of Europe, though. I mean. yeah. yeah. No, it's, it, we've, it just kind of makes you realize what a weird little bubble most of us have grown up in in mm-hmm. in the west of basically it's been a very relatively peaceful time compared to yeah because we export the the wars yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, i'm not saying it's not for i know most of the world is still i'm just saying we're living in this bubble right yeah, yeah. so that's the yeah, I mean, war history for like, the week <laughs> like you're saying yeah it was a it was a rough time man like there was always a fight going on you always had to kind of watch where you went keep yourself about you it's, it's, it's actually stood me very well in good stead traveling the planet and going to third world countries or dodgy neighborhoods in certain cities and you're like I, I can it's okay to go down that street it doesn't look too shady oh but those guys over there they're just kids you'll be alright yeah you know? I think that's something you have had a natural sense of that when we go tour around all these cities mm-hmm. other people in our crew yeah, uh, you know who I'm talking about. Just uh, <laughs> basically seem completely oblivious to that. Yeah, you know, and there's it's just a I guess I don't know awareness or something that you're just like okay, well we should not go that street. And whereas Mo, <laughs> once, you've, once you've had your head kicked in a few times, man, you tend to you tend to learn. Although yeah. Mo, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so we were going to talk about also you know what we've been up to the last. Um, 
few weeks and months because we haven't been on the road. So you've been mm. out with a band called Cut Copy. Yeah, an Australian band who just came back after a couple of years off. Mm. Yeah, they just released a new record and needed a hand, so I jumped in. What, 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 what are you doing tours? on that tour? Uh, I was backline tech to begin with because they needed a backline guy. Their current guy was out with, oh God, I can't even remember who, Lord or someone else now. There's a whole stack of the bands that he works with. So I jumped in and, you know, Kind of like what you guys started at the ground and took everything apart and put it all back together again with new bits and better bits and stopped and breaking it because they had a, they had a pretty bad history of things failing during the show on them and when I first met them they were quite paranoid so I was like the only way I'll do this is if I start, the same thing I did with Ratatat right um, but now that's all fixed and they need a monitor guy so I guess I'm making some monitors at the moment I'll see what I do next week or next month that could be some other job with them I've always found it funny when you've gone out on tour with other bands where you know you're filling a slot like backline tech yeah and then it's like we almost know that within a month or two you either will have become tour manager (laughs) or effectively be like overseeing everything and I think that there's sometimes uh, that Ratatat tour was like that where I knew the tour manager was going to basically bring you out as a tech but then you were going to end up doing like well, the jobs I, of six people I don't, I don't want to tour manage anymore I don't mean yeah. tour manage you guys but I've got no interest in tour managing any other acts it's just I don't want to get ice at three o'clock in the morning and deal with all that hangover <laughs> yeah but, well, but yeah, yeah you're right I do, I do tend to spread my wings a bit and I, I've got to stop doing that to some degree but I can't no it's it. yeah it's well it's two minds about it like you're actually always helping any tour you're with yeah and i'm not doing it maliciously it's not like i'm trying no, to no, steal yeah. your job i'll take your job if i want it but i, <laughs> I wanted want to go right and me have an easier day so well the the, the term tour manager you know is probably uh, people in our business know but it's not exactly clear what that job is and it's not even 100 percent clear for each act because every band and act has different needs you started out as I mean, when we first started doing the bus touring, mm-hmm. you were our tour manager, uh, which in our context was basically the captain of the ship, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, you guys were running a fairly solid ship, as it, as it were. You, you were running your business well, and but you hadn't had experience of being in that mode of transport and that kind of, I guess, intensity of touring. So I was there to kind of fill the gaps and push yeah. the knowledge and... So, oh, we can do eight interviews that day if you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even just the bus, like rooting the bus, there's all this stuff that we learned from, you know, it was our first bus tour and you'd done it a bunch. So, like, you know, communicating with the driver and getting him a hotel yeah. room and making sure that his hours are set and, you know, the distances are okay, mm-hmm. where to park, all that stuff, it's it's pretty much a full-time job you know interfacing with the venue yeah that that in itself is a full-time job and then is interfacing with the venue then is interfacing with the label and the yeah. press corps and yeah yeah so over the years we've we've sort of expanded our crew a little bit and hired on new guys as we can yeah and uh maybe one of our next guests will be jason who's sort of been coming up under your wing as yeah. taking over the tour managing duties so that you can focus on the production side because hmm. what you know what we learned early on and then continue to learn was your and this is not a fluff piece on me <laughs> but it may turn into that uh, uh, your your skill in everything technical everything yeah. related to the show the sound you like you even know, know love, all yeah. the lights fixtures you know all the turn you can talk to anyone in any part of the um this touring world and you know their language so we saw that value early on we want we wanted your strengths to be mixing the sound to be all without a clipboard yeah <laughs> yeah no i definitely production is my is, is my domain you know yeah. i like tinkering i like knowing what all the things are you know yeah. i just I have that 
interest. I just need to know what that box is. I don't really care about it yeah. so much, but I need to know. It's like if you you know you, you put a team together and you've got Albert Einstein. And you're like, okay, Albert. Um, you're going to take the food orders. <laughs> you know, it's a wasted talent. Yeah. Well, uh, there's there's so much footage we have now of Jason, and this is a part of why I imagine you say you're not that interested in tour managing other acts or even necessarily in the idea of tour managing. Just hours and hours of footage we have of him on the phone yelling at customer service at a hotel or something. There is like a, that's a thankless part of that job that I know you've done See, days and, I, and, and weeks did, and months and, and years of. And I tried to warn Jason. I was like, you don't want to do that, man. It's just going to give you a whole load of grief in the long run. And then, you know, fast forward to your, what, 27 terabytes of footage of him on the phone going, now listen, what we need to do here is... <laughs> and he's nice southern... He's, he's so good at it, though. Like, no, he's, he just, he's, he's so good at, like, being... Absolutely forceful and still sounding like he's smiling. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then after what eighteen months of doing that, he's got it down to a razor's edge now, man. He's, yeah. He's on and off that phone in forty-five minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> um, what well, what are, what have you guys been up to lately? Uh, other, since no. we've not been on there, I mean, we see each other every day at the freaking studio, so it's not like we're going to tell each other anything new but yeah <laughs> honestly not that much uh that we haven't talked about in the last few podcasts you know this the new record um obviously i'm telling you guys like, we're in the <laughs> studio it's great <laughs> but to the audience the new record um and recording is taking up uh pretty much all of our energy and time right now and the the docuseries and um a few other things that's why mick is out in town um when he's not on tour with cut copy he comes out and joins us and helps in the studio and engineering role so yeah, really. Other than that, um, I, I can't, I can't give you anything exciting. <laughs> Netflix added the three Godfathers. Oh, they did. Yeah, oh, so that's what I've been doing. Still haven't finished Godfather three. No, I've finished I think it, that's but yeah, the most it's common worth. story about the Godfathers. Oh, I never finished Godfather three. It's just not as good. Yeah, yeah it's worth finishing that. I think it's now that you know, I, nobody I know has cable anymore. You know, the Godfather trilogy is one of those things that if it came on, you would stop and watch it. It's like the Shawshank Redemption, you know? Yeah. But now that it's on Netflix, I wonder, will you actively go and press play to watch it for the 10th time if it's not passively on? I don't think it's so. It's trending right now. Oh, really? So, on yeah. Netflix, I mean... I wouldn't mind actually watching it top to bottom without commercials. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a lot slower than you remember it. Oh, I don't doubt but it. But it's, it's still... It's not slow in a bad way. It's just you have to... It's not one of those movies or series you have to you can watch while it being on your iPhone. You know, which yeah. almost every TV and movie nowadays is is you can get the gist of it and still be checking your. I watch. I watch it's also one of the locations. heaviest movies. I, I mean, I think Godfather Two is one of the heaviest feeling movies I've ever seen. Yeah. The build up to Fredo is just yeah. dark. <laughs> well, <I watched> Spoiler <laughs> alert! <laughs> if you have you've I mean, seen it. You. I watched Scarface the other day. I'm talking about Pacino movies, and I was doing the same thing, playing about it on my iPhone. And then I was like, oh, no, I can't do this. This is great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sacrilegious. Certain movies are sacrilegious to sit there, you know, checking Instagram. What's, a, like what's astounding is that movie is now, Pfeiffer. what, almost 50 years old? It's like early 70s or mid-70s? What, or what? Starface? Or no, no, Godfather. Godfather. Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, almost 50 years old, something like that. That's hard for a movie to stand that test of time, I think. Yeah, but that crew of directors I was watching the Spielberg uh, documentary and I still haven't finished that <laughs> but um, that crew of directors they were so tight they were Spielberg uh, Coppola and um, Scorsese Scorsese yeah and no was Scorsese in that well, I don't know if he's um, no, in it but I'm he sorry. wasn't with them but uh, there was a bunch of those guys and they were George Lucas and yeah Lucas yeah. yeah there was five of them and they were just like this little 
crew that would you know help each other out on movies and also compete obviously it was friendly competition and yeah they just they took over hollywood they took over from the old guard you know it's probably happening now again i find that the pace of movies and tv um, there's like a backlash to it at least with me where you know the sort of page turner type of show where you know every episode ends with a cliffhanger and you just have to watch the next one uh kind of a rejection to that phenomenon you know and i well personally i'm if something is kind of paced out and is slower uh like that show hold and catch fire you know which is you could watch a few episodes and think oh this is boring i'm not going to watch it but it it has a slower sort of pace that reels you in and i'm actually enjoying that more than the you know cliffhanger type shows yeah it depends what kind of fish you are how you get hooked you know yeah <laughs> Um, oh, the, my the vegetable garden, I, that little patch at the studio, um, the winter garden starting to finally come in, so now we can actually start eating from it, some greens and bok choy. What are you growing? Bok choy and just a whole bunch of winter greens and some carrots and things like that. So You've had some salads from it before. Yeah, so lettuces and kales and things, and it's finally getting to the size where you can start harvesting it without demolishing it yeah and the some this is a uh, invariable thing that happens whenever we eat one of your salads i always say the same thing and i catch myself saying the same thing I'm like man this tastes alive if you slaughter the the lettuce that day <laughs> and put it in your your salad it tastes it just tastes alive and it, it's hard to tell if that's psychosomatic or not no, no it's definitely yes yeah, no. yeah. yeah. it seeps out over time yeah yeah mm. well you can at some stores you can get I had a lettuce that still got the sort of roots on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a bar lettuce. Yeah, I, that's what I get for you know making sandwiches or mm. um, veggie burgers. In my case, where you, you can pull a few leaves off and it's it's lost. It's most lettuce will go bad in like four or five days. This yeah. lost weeks. It's still yeah. fresh. I think that especially the leaves are things that you should try to eat as soon as possible because they're not like a root. They don't have any resistance to uh, decomposition. You know, there's definitely a indescribable taste or feeling when you're eating something that's been harvested immediately as opposed to who actually who knows how long some of this stuff has been sitting in the store like you may get it it's been packaged but it could have been harvested five days ago put in some uh, preserved state in their plastic bags and then or use some gas to preserve it and then it gets into the store and then you uh, buy it and you put in your fridge for a few more days it's like it could be two weeks old by the time you're eating it whereas if you uh, eat it you know, five minutes after it's come out of the ground, it's it really does taste alive. Which, um, yeah, you can't describe it really with a like any type of taste. It's not that it tastes. Um, it's not it, different it, than yeah, other lettuce necessarily. It's just more yeah. so. It's like you can taste energy from it, basically, or you can sense a different type of energy from it. I, this is kind of related. I know Mick likes cooking mushrooms. We've I, talked yeah. about a lot of ways to cook mushrooms. I think I, I used to hate it for most of my life, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I was same way. It, it just, I think as a kid, it's a hard one to get people on, or at least for Western diets. But yeah. then I highly recommend that you do not listen to the uh, Joe Rogan podcast with, what's his name, Paul Stamets? Paul Stamets, yeah. He's one of the leading mycologists. Mm-hmm. And there's he's, a f- he's off his rocker. He's amazing. Yeah, he's, he's like, I mean, he's a genius biologist i guess you'd call him uh, it's mycologist mycologist but yeah specializing in mushrooms and sure. fungus and i don't even know if he's a, a, a properly trained mycologist i think he just took a lot of psilocybin well, <laughs> yeah but he's, I mean, he's like widely acknowledged as the go-to guy if yeah, you yeah, have a question yeah. about mushrooms yeah. especially if you're into the more uh, wild exotic stuff yeah exotic yeah. claims but, and like you know you know 
the reason you shouldn't listen to him is because what like three quarters of the way into the podcast joe rogan asked him about what his favorite kind of mushrooms are and they're talking about like oyster mushrooms all this he's like yeah those are great he goes what about portobellos and he goes oh no you shouldn't you shouldn't shouldn't eat portobello mushrooms he sets it up he goes uh uh, Portobello's Joe Rogan likes him. He says those, those are so good. There must be something bad about them. And he goes, "Yeah, there are." And and I and I can't talk about it because my life is threatened. He literally said that if he was well, to talk about the things I heard about it is you've got to cook them to at least four hundred degrees. Otherwise, there are yeah in them that will do you wrong. There's something called a garotene in them, which is a carcinogen. Yeah, and it takes either hours of boiling or extreme heat to yeah. break down a garotene. But a garotene can also be changed into uh, jet fuel. Oh, really? Uh, Which yes, is a diesel. Think, yeah, no, the hydro... It's called um, hydrolazine. Okay. Some, I think it's called hmm. hydrolazine. But any, it's, so he go, said quite... He's quite, uh, um, like, appointedly, this is an explosive area. I think he was saying that mushrooms are explosives or something like that. Wow. I don't know. Whatever he was saying, it was one of the weirdest... Like, there's a whole sub conspiracy theory thing that's jumped out on the internet now if you go search yeah. joe rogan portobello mushrooms wow. like there's this whole thing going on like what did he mean is it because yeah. of aliens is it because of this well, really i saw people saying that the mob from sicily runs <laughs> portobello mushroom <laughs> distribution and wow. they would kill him if he said something bad about the carcinogens in mushrooms it, it's crazy though it i guarantee that had an effect on the portobello mushroom business because I've bought mushrooms in the last two or three weeks since I listened to that. I didn't buy portobellos. Just for, I don't know, whatever Maybe we should is. cut this. Maybe we're putting him. his life in danger. <laughs> <laughs> Quite serious. Like, he was so, it was so bizarre. The entire podcast, he was entirely normal. And then he literally froze and said, I can't wow. talk about this. It That's was crazy. bizarre. Well, I, I very rarely buy portobellos anyway. <laughs> but I mean, mushrooms are to be respected. The only thing that will kill you in Scotland, besides the natives, is a mushroom. <laughs> there are no animals or insects that will kill you. All oh, right, they have it because the forests in in Scotland and yeah. Northern England are just covered in some of the highest density of uh, variety of mushrooms. I think is I believe in so. Those one forests anyway. and in Northwestern hmm. America. I believe, yeah, yeah. Like I, I thought that was one of the best podcasts I'd listen to ever if you all out there are listening um we, and it's it's just fascinating the mushroom thing <laughs> kind of picture vikings landing in north scotland yeah thousands of years ago whenever the hundreds whatever it was and getting tripping high. on mushrooms yeah, yeah. <laughs> well they, they did they, they used still doing they, it, man. they made Have you ever been up to shetland <laughs> what would the pagans would use mushroom psychedelic mushrooms in their mead right and then they would you they would get high before they did all of their ritualistic ceremonies and stuff like that. Yeah. And there's like the psychedelics in Africa. Too. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about music. Uh, so, how much, we probably spent years, if you add up all the time, on a bus together. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a, usually a decent sound system, at least in the American buses. And <laughs> Yeah, just getting it plugged in is the hard yeah, part. Yeah, it's, it's like one of those things where the sound system and the TV, it's all plugged in, sort of built into the wall, and usually something's not plugged in right. And For some reason, bus companies, every bus company to, so we, seems to believe that we want 5.1 surround sound in a bus. If there's <laughs> absolutely no position in the vehicle, well, that would actually be... No. beneficial to anybody no you just want decent stereo sound so that you can watch a movie or you can play some friggin music but it's been funny because you see Mick and Garen and like all this genius brain trust of audio engineering spending an hour trying to plug an iPhone into the, bu- the bus system it's pretty hysterical I blame GVC <laughs> <laughs> well uh, I remember one of our first bus tours you know everybody gets a chance to sort of do the playlist or pick a song or whatever mm. 
and uh, you pulled up some stuff that has since become a few of our favorite tracks. So I thought <laughs> one of the ones we could talk about was Candy Staten. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the what's the song called it's the you know, the best, best best you thing, ever had best thing you ever had best thing you ever had yeah, yeah. and I, I looked after we heard that song I looked for it on Apple I looked on Spotify it's nowhere you have to go on YouTube yeah, um, yeah. Or, or buy it yeah or, <laughs> I, I don't buy music no anymore, that anymore you know? and, I mean I can't I, I've got to be honest I didn't buy that either <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's it's a it's a moat it's from the Motown era right do you know yeah. if that song was recorded at Muscle Shoals mm. it was yeah yeah yeah. Is that's where she came from? Yeah, it is. I just think one of the best sort of Motown slash soul tracks. That's killer. Man. She's an amazing singer. There's some special vibe on that song. We put it on the bus, and I just remember everyone was a little bit drunk, and you got up, you know, big Scottish dude drinking Guinness and whiskey, and you start fucking dancing and singing along to this song. <laughs> and there's a little bit of moment of connection among the band and crew of, over this song. And, you know, we'll He's put a link an to animal. it. I think, it's, I think it's that special of a recording. It's the first time I think we saw Mick kind of really let loose. Mm. Yeah. You know, because you know, well, the relationship was still relatively new, at least being on the bus 24-7, everyone's mm-hmm. getting to know each other. And after a few weeks or months, you, you, know, you start to open up a little bit more. But that was like that one moment where it was like, oh, <laughs> this is who Mick actually I'm not, is. I'm not all work all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that documentary, Muscle Shoals, as yeah. well, um, you introduced us to that as well. I think yeah, we watched it together because we were birthday? in this. His birthday? Someone's birthday. Yeah. Birthday. Y- y- Mick was out here at the studio, and I, I think I speak for everyone. We were all just kind of in a slump where we were just running around in circles. We we're in the studio, just not nothing's really. Uh, going and then we took a break and we ate lunch and Mick put on this Muscle Shoals documentary and it's this uh, studio in Alabama right Mm -hmm. in the kind of swamps of Alabama that put out just an incredible amount of hit songs in that era the Motown era and beyond and we all left watching that documentary feeling like all right that's it. Now we've got a hit. We've got the energy to put out a hit record, you know, to start recording more hit songs. <laughs> it's that first Aretha Franklin record, well, not not first it record, the first but one. the it was the first breakout one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all the big hits. Just like insane collection of uh, muscle, shells? muscle shells, insane collection of amazing music that came out of there. Yeah, um, and yeah. The, the, that guy's stories. Pretty. He just passed away the other day, just last week actually. Oh, uh, really? The guy that built the studio and his life story is horrendous, man. Yeah, just that tragedy. Family tragedy. tragedy yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that I would say that's the best music Rick documentary Hall, I've ever seen. Muscle yeah. Shoals. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of a better. I mean, the George Harrison one is up there, but mm-hmm. I this Muscle Shoals documentary is literally the best. Well, I think that is the that has got to be the biggest factor in his success and the emotion that came out of that studio and all the music was that because his life was such a struggle with yeah. everything, his, you know, his family and the tragedies that he had in his, his life. And it just made us think, I remember having the feeling like, what, what are we struggling with here in mm. this studio, in this environment and nothing. And we didn't have any of that. And, but we were still feeling sorry for ourselves that <laughs> yeah. we couldn't get, you yeah. know, something going in the studio. And that was this little epiphany it was like, Okay, now we just yeah. need to get back to work. It's not, it's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> not and, that since, bad. and since that day, there's been not one single complaint. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you or know, whining. Finding, finding that Candy Staten stuff and, and most of those songs that I put on that playlist that day, I've got to, I've got to thank the Modfather for that. Paul Weller was the guy that kind of 
he didn't directly give me a playlist, but his tour manager was a good friend of mine. He tour managed Jeff for a while. And he was playing this playlist in the production office, and I kept going, going, what the hell is this? This is amazing. I've reached a song. What's I've his every, name? Uh, Sean Richards, the guy's Sh- name is. Okay. A good friend of mine. He's still tour managing. Still does Jet. Well, uh, was was uh, John Pahachanu on that playlist? It was indeed. Okay. Amongst many, many others. All right, yeah. this is another track that Mick played on the bus. Uh, it's by an Indian artist called Muhammad Rafi. Mm-hmm. Jan it's basically yeah it's like a it's a bollywood song if you look it up on youtube it's got a full-on bollywood dance routine and everything but uh you put this track on it's it's sort of a weird mix of uh 50s, 50s surf, surf kind yeah. of guitar music with bollywood music yeah. and uh, it is it's pure fun pure energy yeah. uh you know <laughs> and i've tested this in an objective way in a science lab that <laughs> that is it's one of the best examples of like fun music because (laughs) i would play it for eve before she was walking you know Mm so i put it on the little boom box and uh stand her in front of the mirror and like bounce her around with it and you know she went into bliss like it was just (laughs) heaven for her yeah the way it's recorded also is that a lot of that bollywood stuff where they just seems like they didn't really know how any of the equipment worked and they just turned it up until it sounded nice ish Because it's all this super distorted delays and weird sounds that are technically wrong. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like an engineer school wouldn't teach you to do that. Right. And then it sounds technically awesome. <laughs> the first band that I toured with, uh, the band called The High Fidelity, um, Sean Dixon, who was the singer of the Soup Dragons, rec- went out to Bollywood to record the string parts on his record. Uh, and did, I can't remember the violinist's name, but he was the, the band leader, the musical director. And... He ended up coming out and playing some shows in the UK, but you're right, that Bollywood thing, they didn't quite, it's like they didn't quite know what they were doing. They worked in these huge, beautiful, big studios, but everything that came out of them has this sound. I don't know who you would call it. It's got yeah. this smear over it. It just has this tone. Yeah. And Muhammad Rafi's got it, and even Sean in the 90s when he made that record, it sounds, the, the string part sounds like something out of the 60s in Bollywood. Yeah, yeah those strings, it's almost like you just have a top end, but then it's all distorted overdriven well, yeah, and but also, it just, like, the doesn't tape, even sound like strings and like the tape the guys that were servers in the tape machines probably didn't know exactly what they were doing because there's so much wow and flutter on them as well yeah. it's, it's crazy yeah it's it is like cooking though and i think you know if you india was our favorite food ever mm. so i think if you can cook you can make a, a record well what was that what it's was like it? if you you could make a clinical record it'd be like eating only steamed vegetables for your entire life I was watching a cooking <laughs> show I can't remember who it was was it Bourdain maybe he went to India and one of the oh no uh, G- uh, Gordon Ramsay was it Ramsay yeah it's it? amazing and yeah. the guy was cooking and the, the, the prince or something was yeah. cooking and he burnt the onions and burnt something and he's like no 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 you have to do that That's uh, of course of yeah. yeah yeah I saw that yeah. what was it Gordon Ramsay? Or well, there's one where Gordon Ramsay goes and the, the, there's a guy who cooks for a wedding and he's like cooking in those uh, those pots he's making rice he's making like a ton of rice or something like that oh, for okay. I don't think that was the Ramsey one this one was like it was, yeah I, I remember was, what you're talking it's like an aristocrat he's yeah. like a super rich guy um, but oh, he, okay. he's, he loves cooking and he cooks for big functions and he yeah. likes to personally do the cooking yeah right right. yeah and he, he he was all about making quote making the mistakes you know or burning burning something yeah because that adds mean, the character to it yeah yeah mm. Yeah, there's no question that's true. I mean, so we obviously have Indian because I can't imagine Ramsay being good with somebody burning something. If it's, if it's you know what? I saw a blackets. different Gordon Ramsay in that because he he's usually his little TV characters. Like, what is this? His dog shit? What fucking whatever he says? I don't know why I'm doing a Cockney. Oh, he is Cockney. He, no, he's, no, he's, he's Scottish, Scottish, but he sounds <laughs> what? He sounds Gordon English, Ramsay so. is Scottish. Yeah. 
He's he does not sound Scottish. He's obviously he's tried to get moved, rid of an accent. Okay, yeah. Um, anyway, he, in India, he was like a kid reverent. in Disneyland. Yeah, and he was reverent of all the all the cooks there because he was curry is my favorite food. <laughs> so Mick, we've obviously have uh, a curry in common. We've yes. had many a curry together. Uh, what's the place? I don't think we got to go there in Glasgow that you said is your favorite place. Uh, Mother India. Mother and India. Mother India's cafe. I think that's the one Bourdain goes to on the, ep- the Glasgow episode. Uh, he went to Mother India, yeah, the actual restaurant upstairs with the oak paneled walls and all that. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, so this is just a... The cafe is like a little daughter one that they opened up. It's always packed. It's all tapas style. Because if, you, if, you, if you're a curry eater and you get to go with a group of people, it's great. Because you order you know, family style and have four, five, six different curries and everybody shares and you try yeah. everything out. When you get hooked on that way of eating and living and then you go and have a curry by yourself... You're either going to be broke or you know, just you know, yeah. You got to order yeah. five dishes for yourself, or you. Whereas Mother India's cafe was great because it was you know like four or five pound dishes, and they were just you know three or four spoonfuls per dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you could yeah. go and get three or four things, and I think uh, Batty Grill, New York, that tops our list. Yeah, or Indian food. Yeah. Mm. Um, in you also got Garen, I know, hooked on Sichuan food because that's your thing. Well, yeah, it was John Boy Rock that got me hooked on that, so he goes down for that one. But yeah, that Sichuan food is um, amazing to me. It's the yeah. first Chinese food that I actually understood because you know Western Chinese food is just crap. Basically, yeah. mm. you know. if, if you can get you can go uh, you can get Sichuan peppercorns online. Well, I've got green and red in the house right mm. now. <laughs> yeah, for anybody who hasn't had a, like a raw. Szechuan peppercorn you should go get some and try it it's like a toast them first it, well yeah or do them raw just to see what th- it does to your tongue because it's, it's like putting a, a lemony 9 volt battery on your tongue <laughs> it's, it's not spi- it's not spicy it literally feels electric it's numbing yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. it's tingly yeah. and- I just know that you and Garen are ballsier men than we are because you've gone for Sichuan before we have like a 4am lobby call with an 8 hour flight yeah. and that is that's a risky move it's opinion. dangerous <laughs> I wouldn't do it on your first outing <laughs> you definitely have to work your way up to that kind of skill level <laughs> I mean, if I've not had it for a while and I jump back in the deep end then yeah, yeah I don't advise that but it's, it's wonderful I mean it's like if you gave a chicken tikka masala to an Indian dude he'd punch you in the face well he probably wouldn't punch you in the face but he'd just walk away going what is this crap that yeah. we don't yeah. do that you know, like what is a sweet and sour pork? Never heard of it. Don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, on the flip side, you know, I haven't been there, but I know you've been to Japan a few times. You know, yeah. it's like when you go to some of the Asian countries and and you see their version of American or British food, <laughs> yeah. or, you know, it's like mayonnaise on pizza, pizza with and corn on yeah, it, and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> man, the mayo on a pizza is a bizarre one. <laughs> yeah. It's funny when you go to other countries as well. Like when you go to Japan. One of the biggest dishes they have there is Korean barbecue, but they don't really get on with the Koreans. They kind of no, yeah. There's a whole history of like <laughs> yeah, massive problems. Mm. <laughs> it's like vice versa, you know. It's, it's always bizarre, but yeah, yeah. All right, well, well let's Trump talk wants about to build a wall, and he still eats, ta- you know, taco bowls. So or, taco no, he salad? doesn't. I think he does. He he had a taco salad, but they didn't sell it in his restaurant. Who? Uh, uh, the orange Trump. man. Oh, Trump. No, yeah, yeah he, he posted a, a tweet that yeah. said Trump. Hotel has the best tacos in the country. There's a picture of him eating the tacos. Yeah, there's a picture of him eating But then, then one of the responses was, dude, like, I'm in your restaurant right now and it's not on the menu and you tweeted the picture of the menu. <laughs> only, he, only he gets it you know, up in his office. Yeah, right. I want tacos right now. 
He's like he really is a product of the internet. I, I I'm trying he to imagine a, he. There's no way he could have been elected before the concept of an of a troll. I mean, I know trolls have existed throughout history, but the they really got repopularized in <laughs> internet culture, and that's it. Feels like every day is like we're actually living in an internet simulation and we're being trolled. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the music business. Um, something that probably the thing that you're most fond of when doing gigs mm-hmm. um tv gigs corporate gigs any type <laughs> of um functions are what we call clipboard people to put it, well, that's the very nice uh, clipboarders yes yeah. yes <laughs> clipboarders so tell us the about ERS clipboarders and, with another word so yeah. tell us about clipboarders and what they are and why you love them so much um when we're gigging i think you named it you got it right on the nail right on the head there when you said function anyone that describes a gig as a function is probably a clipboarder <laughs> you know? so it's not like a cool sport Right, no. clipboarding. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't go downhill on a clipboard. All right. So, uh, for someone visually, try to describe what a clipboarder is. Well, you know, there's those of us that do shows day in and day out for years and years and years, and sure, we go long in the tooth and a bit jaded and whatnot. But then there are those people that really want to get into the industry and really trying hard, and sometimes are kind of led down the garden path by the wrong lot, and you know. They don't really know what they're doing, but they think they do. And they're usually given a clipboard and they have all the information on it. And, you know, <laughs> so Usually when you spot a clipboard, you know, you've got a day on your hands. Right. Something's it's, gonna it's go usually, it's a, a corporate gigs are a good example. Yes, when, absolutely. Yeah, they choose a venue. Maybe that's not usually a venue. And they choose people who put on events, but not necessarily that's exactly shows. It. It's a beautiful space. Like, right, it's, a, yeah. it's a marble square room. Right, yeah. It's just not going to work, man. What was that? That Boston gig we did, they yeah. chose oh, the, the most gig? echoey room I've ever heard in my life. Oh, and the outdoor gig, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the indoor room. Right, the, yeah. Yeah, with all the marble everywhere. Yeah, yeah that was pure horrendous. concrete walls, yeah. Listen, we can't talk too much shit because it's the clipboard gigs that generally pay for half the tour. Ah, they right, deserve yeah, that, yeah. though. They've got all the money. Yeah, it's, you know. <laughs> I'm actually working on one at the moment. Not 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 as I'm sitting on this chair, but <clears throat> but yeah, my wife and I have a production company, and there's a few corporate entities that get in touch, going, "Oh, can you get some bands? Can you help us with this?" And same thing, you know. Lo and behold, they booked the wrong. Oh, we're going to be doing an aircraft hangar. Didn't we do a gig in an aircraft hangar once? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's, like, it's people. You know, we spend most like ninety percent of our gigs are with people who do this for a living every yeah. day. You know, the venue does rock bands, or they do touring acts every yeah. single day so they know the ins and the outs but when you get the sort of brand that wants to put on an event to sell their product or you know yeah. get advertising out of it they throw a bunch of money at it they hire people who you know very often a piece of um gear that goes along with the clipboard as a headpiece you know you've got a bunch of people running around a venue with clipboards and headpieces organizing and they're doing the exact opposite of organizing they're confusing the hell out of everyone especially yeah. the people who do it for a living it's like yeah. veep i think it's I, like it's I like think the only exception to this would be like in a like a, a live tv environment yeah, where the stage like, manager is running around with a clipboard but the clipboard has a clock on it mm-hmm. you know and they're actually doing something yeah right. I, I think that that is a good example because what was the i think we did that today Show. That, that was unreal yeah. to watch. Yeah. That's that's the person who deserves a clipboard. Yeah, you know? yeah. just the timing necessary in that, oh, and just sure. the the yeah. I mean, they stick to a schedule. Like I haven't yeah. seen, and it's not even the BBC. Like. They're still off by a few minutes. Yeah. Those guys. But. So, <laughs> as with anything, it's not the tool that is the problem. It's the tool using the tool. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with the clipboards. Right or, tool for the job. The clipboard might be in the right place. The person behind the clipboard is not in the right spot. <laughs> Anyway, it's just a it's a it's a big warning flag of watch yeah. out. This might be a fun day. It's it's one of those stereotypes that is not always true, but very often, 
you show up, you see a clipboard and a headpiece, you know it's going to be a hell of a friggin' day. <laughs> yeah, unless you happen to know the person with a headpiece on. It's quite the opposite of what the visual is supposed to represent. Like, the visual yeah. of having a headpiece and a clipboard is re- supposed to re- represent this. Everything's going to be organized, everything's going to yeah. be running on time, you're going to get everything you need in your dressing room, and when you see the first person you see, if you pull up to a corporate gig and they have a clipboard, you say, okay, there's not going to be anything in the dressing room, there's not. <laughs> there's going to be no bathroom, everything's going to run 20, 30, 40 minutes We behind. should probably go and eat now because yeah. we're never going to eat any other time today <laughs> they haven't they didn't hire a pa or you know they didn't do anything yeah yeah i'm just they also they also referenced their what is written down and they believe that before they believe reality you know they'll <laughs> are you guys walk the moon no we're congas uh, it says you're walk the moon you know, we're telling you right now. What's that? I think the extreme exception to this was that uh, Navy gig we did. They, I didn't see any clipboards that day. No, but I can tell you that were, something was being clipboarded there because that was like literally the most organized. We've never yeah. seen a writer fill that well. Or like it was just Dude, crazy how well organized balloons and it was. Gave me a birthday card, man. Come yeah, <laughs> it was pretty full That's on. True, jeez. Yeah, they, they were. Did, they did forget to bring the mixing desks, but you know that oh. wasn't the organizer's fault. <laughs> they were the on top of it, which is you know you would you would expect that from a military. Um, yeah, yeah, but that was done by the civilian aspect of it. But man, they they nailed it. Yeah, they really did. The audio company didn't, but hey, I'm not naming names. <laughs> All right, so member berries, um, for those of you guys that have been listening for the past uh, few weeks or months or whatever, we do this section called member berries, which is referencing the South Park episode where they eat these little berries that just fill you with all sorts of nostalgia when they they just always say, remember when, remember that time? So we're going to do that and just reminisce a little bit with Mick. Oh, it's like being drunk again. Yeah. (laughs) No, we'll start off with Lima. Um, which for us was one of our favorite cities and shows that we ever did, but there was something that um, almost went terribly wrong with that gig, if you want to elaborate. That, that was my first time in Peru. You know, I've been in several other South African, South African, South American countries um, and had witnessed some of the trials and tribulations and pitfalls available there, but this is our second time going down through South America and I was slightly more confident. But my first time in Peru... And usually, what's your power system here? Is it 110 or 220, 240, 230? What, what, what is it here? Well, it depends what part of town you're in. Oh, that's <laughs> fun. So what's the convention for a socket? You know, is it an Edison socket? Is it a European-style socket? Is it this? Is it that? Well, no, they're all the same. So you literally have no idea what the heck you're plugging into, you know? Which modern equipment doesn't necessarily matter. If it's got a computer in it, you could probably plug it into any power supply and it would work just fine. But a lot of the gear that we use doesn't work that way. And if you plug it in wrong, it'll go bang, which the backline company didn't realize, and they blew up the Fender Twin within the first 20 minutes. And then we continued to plug in other things. And I've since taught Gern and Mo and anybody else, don't plug anything in the wall until I've told you that it's okay to use this sock or that. Um, so we had a heck of a day trying to get anything to work that day to yeah. the point where... Well, you guys got there to the venue way, way before we did to, to set up hours, and stuff. Hours and, and hours. Yeah. yeah, so normally, you know, we'll we'll have press or we've got other stuff to do and then we show up and lately, the gear is pretty much always set up. It's ready to go by the time we get there. It's, it's a great luxury, I must say, being in the band. But this Peru one, we got there hours later and you guys were still working on it because... Well, yeah, trying, to try and like relate it to so imagine you're traveling over the seas for the first time right and you go, you're going to England and you know England well they have a different plug I need to get this I need this adapter you know just to plug your phone in or whatever like yeah. now imagine that times a thousand because we've, we've got so many pieces of gear and what, what you're saying was 
because it even took me a second to to pick it up what you're saying, that Mm. in Peru, in Lima, they have different power standards in different parts of the same city. Yeah, the hole in the wall is the same all across the city. It's an American-looking socket everywhere. Yeah. But what comes out of the socket, what's behind the socket, is different. (laughs) Yeah. It's either what it is in America or quite literally double that. (laughs) So and the the real issue is not even necessarily going to blow up a piece of gear. What you were worried about ultimately well, was... Well, it will blow gear up, but I don't necessarily care about gear. Yeah, it's, it's the fact gear. that on it was on my mic this time, there was... was I'm not even going to even try and explain it. It was on all of them at first. Oh, it was? Okay, yeah. Uh, the very real potential of a, you know, not necessarily fatal, but serious electrocution. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, another word for voltage is potential difference, and the potential difference between ground the earth itself and the voltage that you're using there should be zero potential difference between the microphone that you've got in your hand or near your mouth and the floor that you're standing on or the guitar that you're playing the string should be grounded um that wasn't the case there and while the socket that we had things plugged into was 110 volts the potential difference between your microphone and the physical ground was like 167 so somehow voltage was coming out of nowhere there is no there's no rhyme nor reason for why that was the case if it was a 220 socket sure i can understand getting 167 because it's less than that but you can't create voltage out of nothing but for some reason the 110 socket something to do with the the power supply that the PA was on and the backline was on. Uh, to be honest, to this day, I'm not entirely sure why it was doing that either. I'd needed to have had more time, and the four hours that I had wasn't enough. But yeah, man, that was probably the worst case that I've ever seen before. And there was no solution to get. We managed to get it out of everybody else's. We had to lose some of your effects, Danny and mm-hmm. oh, Jess. You don't really have anything, nor do you, Dylan. But um, so you basically we, just we ha- told me, don't do not touch your microphone or the metal part of my keyboard. Don't touch the metal part of your keyboard and the microphone at the same time. Right. <laughs> yeah. So for the which I never want to do, but I mean, the choices yeah. are: we don't do the show, or yeah. you do that because there's no there was no other fix other than them getting a generator. Have you ever had a big shock on stage, or in, in working in, in the music world? Yeah. Yeah, I've I've had a belt before. Yeah, but um, I haven't witnessed an artist have a belt. Like the the classic. I've, no, I've, I mean we, I've been stung on the lips. It feels like a. If it's bad, yeah. it just feels like a. I've had this tingly, or it can be like a bit like a bee sting. The tingly or the instant bee sting yeah. is that's usually a bad ground in the mic cable. And yeah. it's, sometimes it's phantom coming down it, or just a bit of stray DC or AC coming from somewhere. But one sixty seven man, like that, just damn hurt. You you tend to lock to it. AC. You tend to blow away from. But that's when you you start shaking immediately. Mm. It's not like a, oh that's sore. It was just like. <laughs> Oh, that's, yeah, I'm being electrocuted <laughs> right now. I need to let go of that. <laughs> so, yeah, in case anyone listening and can't understand the very technical um, electricity <laughs> talk through a thick Scottish accent, the simple moral of the story was that there was a danger of electrocution on stage, and Mick was spending four or five hours to try to fix this. And I decided to go up on stage when they were ready, and they finally said, okay, everything's safe. We can come up on stage. <clears throat> and I told... Jeff, our cameraman, to film me because I was going to play a very, very cruel joke on the crew. And I went up on stage and I didn't know the difference between DC and AC uh, effects on electrocution that, you know, yeah. one would make you kind of uh, blow back in the other one. I just happened to be right about the way I was going <laughs> to act because I went up there and I had my bass in my hand and I grabbed the microphone and started screaming and shaking uh, and convulsing <laughs> and fell back into my... Uh, my uh, bass amp and no one really 
I took was, it very I, lightly. No, I was looking for a bit of wood to hit you off the thing with. Because <laughs> you don't touch somebody that's doing that, you know, right? And then when yeah. he found out a joke, it was a joke, he was oh, still looking for... afterwards. And then, no, no, and then no, afterwards. Get him <laughs> off of it. Yeah, right, because yeah. I, I was looking, I could see Mo out of the corner of my eye, and he knew that. You don't touch someone when they're um, being electrocuted like no. that. And he was just looking at me like, I'm not doing shit. <laughs> no, you need to go, go turn the breaker off and find a piece of wood to hit them with. You accomplish two things with the wood. Is you know you you save them from electrocution and you also punish them for the joke. See, in my mind though, I I knew full well that this was not going to be a joke that's funny at the time. Yeah. This is, I was thinking oh, I was thinking six famous. months in the future that this is going to be very funny when you look back on it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I, I think that probably covers our member berries section. I, you know, we, we'll definitely have Mick back on because we've been touring for the last. Three, almost four years four now. Years of yeah, four years. Yeah, four years. So March, we've, got, right? we've got a ton of member berries. But um, we'll move on to favorite gear item of the week. And for us, it's non-musical, non-technical. We'll talk about just very quickly our instant cook. Uh, instant pot. Instant pot. Yeah. Instant yeah. pot. Instant pot. Yeah. Okay, well, clearly we're not endorsed by them. <laughs> well, or you we, are? Because yeah. I've never read a label. Um, we, we really like this. It's a, basically a pressure cooker. And I don't know if it's because we use it and you know everyone's listening to what we talk about through our devices that I start seeing advertisements on everything, but I've just started to see a ton of advertisements for the Instapot. Um, basically, it's a pressure cooker, but a really, really easy pressure cooker to use. We bring it on the road where you can cook rice and eggs or some stews. It's electric. You plug it into the wall. And yeah. you, it's super simple. So um, to save, not only save uh, your health, but you also save money on the road. You know, you can buy a bag of rice or buy a bag of potatoes, throw them in there, and they cook super quick. You basically press some buttons, and 10 minutes later... You yeah, over our last tour, our riders started changing to like more raw goods or not raw like uh, bulk goods like we need five pounds of rice uh, eggs yeah. olive oil and, and then, <laughs> then I could start blaming everybody else for the bus smelling like farts yeah. <laughs> I like true. the story of it it's this guy it's a software engineer who got laid off uh, some uh, dad and Robert Wang he got laid off in 2008 and then he sat in his garage and built it designed then, a pressure yeah, yeah. cooker it's a bunch of complicated sensors and stuff it's a cool story I used to use a pressure cooker a lot when I was a kid, but I don't have one. I, I think what makes it interesting or special is that it's got it's got sensors, so it's got automated, yeah. you know. And it doesn't blow up and yeah. soup on your roof, <laughs> right? Yeah. which is what used to happen. It comes in really handy when, you know, you've come to the end of your shopping, uh, your grocery list, you know, and your fridge is kind of empty or your pantry is getting empty, and there's just four or five things that might or might not go together well, and you say, well, <laughs> you give it a shot. You throw it in the Instant Pot and just put it on stew or 30 minutes or whatever it is, and... Uh, it, most of the time it turns out pretty well you know you're just kind of completely experimenting and it turns out so it's also cool because in the high pressure mode you can cook things really quickly like oh, you yeah, can make yeah, lentils yeah. from scratch like dry lentils in yeah. 20 minutes right yeah you know, rice in 8 minutes yeah. yeah and for the meatitarians in the world you can cook a side of brisket in like 45 minutes rather than 8 hours jeez <laughs> yeah, yeah. alright so the the technical or the music I, I have an idea so 8 minute rice we should invent something that makes seven-minute rice. <laughs> Just more voltage. Plug it in, in Lima. Yeah. Um, this week, we've been recording a bunch of uh, vocals, and we use these mics on, on everything. But, um, Mick, tell us about the Coles microphones that we've been using. The Coles for, 4038? Yeah. Uh, it was a BBC design from the 30s, 40s. Coles, mic, Coles initially invented the... What do you call it? The... Um, commentator's microphone the lip microphone 
Mm. Ah, and he comes around the corner. That guy. That was what they first made. But then they made this other one, a larger diaphragm ribbon microphone. Um, weighs, what, 10 pounds a piece? They're yeah, they're heavy. heavy. Huge permanent magnet in it and a small ribbon. Um, <clears throat> I don't know who was it introduced me to them. I can't remember. I might have been John Boyrock again. But basically one of the greatest drum sounds ever created came out of that microphone. And it turns out that it's kind of brilliant everything that it does. Yeah. I mean... I remember you... I remember uh, this is sort of a member Barry too. Uh, first few weeks of touring, you know, we were we had our own mics, but we didn't have the money to get the ones we really wanted. Yeah, and you were telling me about all these drum mics, and you were talking about the Coles mics in the studio. And I remember to this day, you you had a sound. You would add a few beers, but you had a sound for each mic. How it sounds like, <laughs> and you're like these mics that we're using right now on the overheads for the drums. They sound like this. <laughs> He says, you get the calls, and it sounds like this. That's <laughs> <laughs> the first And then yeah. when you, you brought your pair of calls over to the studio, and I got to hear them for the first time, I was like, fuck, he was right. <laughs> it sounds like it's a perfect, smooth, beefy sound. I, mean, I remember when I bought them, I was, I was still kind of, wasn't convinced I was actually going to buy a pair of them. I was going to go for something else instead. And then talking to my guy at the, at the shop that I was going to buy them from, he's like, nah, you, you should probably get them. That's the ones you want. You just, you know, roll a bit of low end off and you've got a great drum sound. I'm like, roll low end off? Who does that? <laughs> and lo and behold, the moment I got them, yeah, you need to pull some bottom end out of those things. They're a bit full on sometimes. But yeah. that's the first microphone I've ever cut bottom end on in a studio environment. Yeah. And, and even and, and the microphone was, what, six feet away from the drum kit too. Yeah. You know, it was insane. And then throw on vocals. It makes anybody sound great. Yeah, throw so a ton of EQ on it. Sounds brilliant, you know. It is kind of a magical sound. Maybe uh, we'll see if we have time. We can maybe go do a little sample, like have somebody speak yeah. into a microphone. Here's record. me in a fifty-eight. Here's me. Maybe in calls. Yeah. Yeah. what we'll do is we'll take a portion of what Mick says in the following segment and overdub it <laughs> as though he's speaking a different language. You know how NPR they'll let the foreign speaker speak and then they'll overdub. And so that's what we'll do. We'll we'll translate what Mick's saying. Sometimes when we come up with these ideas, like the one where we had uh, Sam talk through reverb, just all, made extra work. Yeah, yeah, I had to go spend. It. For 30 minutes setting plugins and everything <laughs> so maybe we won't do any of that <laughs> yeah but you can just listen to the album and hear just the imagine calls. that as an idea tank there too that goes to in- insane you just have to plug yeah. it in <clears throat> so when, yeah. uh, specifically with the calls it was isn't that the glenn was it glenn well, johns well or? glenn actually used u67s i believe well no he didn't i guess they yeah used, he did you yeah, yeah, used well mm, um, i think he used the calls in that position oh, okay. I, I think it was no you used 67s and a 47 i think for the yeah in front of the kick the the levy break sound was the was 67s right or was that so we're talking about uh yeah. the led Other zeppelin markers. producer yeah, and specifically the drum sound uh you know it's kind of one of the most famous miking techniques yeah. is is the way the way he positioned the mics over john bonham's drums was sort of revolutionary at the time it made a new sound a drum sound that no one had ever heard yeah, and was, to this it, day, people use we still, we use it. We use different mics, but we use that technique. Yeah, I mean, he he invented that technique a long time ago, and it was in mono. You know, he was recording in mono back in Abbey Road back then, and uh, I think it was Page that went, "Hold on," and panned them. Yeah. <laughs> and went, "Oh wow, that sounds even great as it is." <laughs> but yeah, the, the technique is somewhere between Recorder Man and Glenn Johns. If you Google them, you'll find them. Yeah, but, I think what makes it also notable is that the following decade, when they started multi miking everything. And then, then following that, people were saying, H- "How do we recreate this le- uh, Zeppelin sound or those good sounds like that?" And they're using, you know, fourteen mics. And then they go and find out. They look at the diagrams, and it was three mics. 
you yeah, know, to get yeah. this great sound. That's the thing. I mean, you do get great drum sound. You do get great sounds when you close mic things. Right, yeah. There's it certain is things absolutely you can't do. possible, but some of the more cohesive sounds, you have to let the 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 waveform propagate is, is mm-hmm. really what the terminology is. You really need to let the waveform happen, let the air start moving, and having a microphone that close, there's not really a lot of air in between the two. Right, yeah. The further away you go... We also think about mic. then you're having 14 sources of what, if you were standing in the room... Of phase would, madness? Yeah, would be coming at you as you know, you're, as one kind of perceived sound. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then trying to recreate that with 14 different mics gets tricky beyond belief well, or the, can do the big thing i watched a thing on facetube the other day and it was a uh, some girl had made a compilation of her favorite uh, gated reverb sounds and talked about the history of gated reverb and how to recreate it in your studio mm. and for the last 20 years i've been trying to get away from that that's what i grew up in like <laughs> yeah. I, can, I, I saw that it. video as sort of a hipster girl talking yeah. about it was great but yeah. you know yeah yeah so that gated reverb sound is like wow Phil Collins, Collins, that Mm. snare drum. Everything comes in and out, and everything goes in and out. Yeah, when I first started engineering, it was all analog consoles. There were digital consoles, but nobody really had any. Um, And you'd go into XYZ Club, and it would already be pre-patched. Every tom would have a... Kick, snare, toms would all be gated, and then there'd be three or four different reverb boxes. One would just be a snare reverb, the other one would be tom reverbs. For those of you listening, a gate is when... Just picture a gate. A gate, you know, a gate that lets in people... Or it opens up. It yeah. does the same thing with audio. It opens up and then closes. So it's either there or it's gone yeah. with the gate. It's, it's like having a whole bunch of extra fingers to mute yeah. channels. So if you gate a drum sound, you cut off the tail. You cut off the quiet sound, the quiet end of it, mm. or the quiet beginning of it even. And stop spill from other instruments right, yeah. in that microphone when there's nothing being played. Right. Yeah. So this is kind of a makes it sound kind of synthetic. Some, yeah. Mick called it face tube. Yeah. So we have an entire glossary of terms and phrases that Mick has come up with that we've never heard before. And what were the ones we were remembering? Honestly, I looked down the list because I, over the last four years, I, I keep notes. I keep <laughs> notes of what Mick says. He'll say something, he has some phrase to describe something, and uh, it's so funny and so kind of originally Scottish that I've never heard it before, so I keep a note of it. And I, we can't say any of them. They're just, you know, we, they would be too offensive. No, no, well, what's the one is... Uh, Nuttier than squirrel shit. Yeah, nuttier than nuttier than squirrel shit is a funny yeah. one. And actually, it's it's very mix up. Been on his on his best behavior this this podcast. He's, I'm trying, man. Yeah, he's not. <laughs> we'll we'll just say that you know, being on a tour bus is a bit like, you know, swears like a sailor. You know, it's the same thing on a tour bus. Yeah. Like terrible language, especially when you introduce Scottish and South Africans and sometimes Australians or. I just like breaking down any boundaries, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's but gonna it's gonna be hard work, you know. I mean, this is this whole being on the road thing. Everybody thinks it's a it's great. I want to get backstage, what to see ten, twelve dudes that are really tired and sick of each other and smelling. No, <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't really want to be part I've of that. I've written down mixed stuff. I mean, he's uh, it's not his, his phrase. He's got the Scottish sayings, and then he's just got things he says when we're at a bar somewhere. <laughs> Passing phrases <laughs> like. I still don't understand that Richard and Dick. How did you get Dick out of Richard? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, he's got, um, what was the last one? I never thought I was susceptible to claustrophobia until I did a bit of spelunking. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so it's, sometimes it's not the crudity of it. It's the, um, 
or crudeness is crudity or crudity crudity is where you have before, before your dinner. Yeah. yeah, the crudeness of it. It's just that it's it's very original to describe something that's funny, like tighter than a whale's arse at twenty thousand fathoms. I bet sharks arse. Or yeah. sharks arse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whales clearly don't have tight arses. Um, but yeah, tighter than a shark's arse at twenty thousand fathoms. Like, is that something you heard or you were? told or I did mean, you come up with you yeah know, i mean elaborate on it growing up in a, in a rehearsal studio where we had all the major bands in scotland and most of the uk coming through um you meet all their roadies um and whatnot you know some of the humor would pop out there's a couple of guys that are legendary back home um and i got to work alongside them and picked up some of their phrases some of them i made up myself but a lot of them come down to alice grant and brian dunn brian dunn you met right mm. he was he was in the kings of leon crew um <clears throat> but yeah, just legendary. There's a guy called Buddy Rennie. Another, this is Frankie Fingers with the head, would know these names. Um, but just hilarious dudes that just have all these absolutely on the spot, completely perfect comments to make, you know, like useless as tits on a bull, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole subreddit uh, called Scottish People Twitter, I think. That oh, is, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I mean, half of it is just kind of shit and then the other half of it is genius because there is an entirely different sense of humor in the uk obviously but then even regionally within uh, scotland and then within scotland itself i imagine there are regions of different kinds of humor between townships man yeah even between neighborhoods like because there is a greatest hits of that kind of scottish Twitter feed yeah amazing but then to be honest with you when i look at my brothers and his friends it's all there (laughs) (laughs) it's just those people you know The What's the show. one that you, you said there? You were somewhere backstage and some girl confused the phrase like boggles the mind. Oh, no, that bottles. was my friend's girlfriend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bottles the mind. <laughs> we were just talking about this with uh, uh, the, in Kenny. Step Brothers. Like, what did they, in Step Brothers, uh, Will Ferrell goes, Yeah, bottles the mind. It's when your mind's in a bottle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But this is the, but, common, yeah, common. But Rebecca had said this in like, you know, Year two thousand, right? I mean, yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this is a while ago. Maybe maybe a bit earlier than that. But uh, back the other, of the neck, back of the neck. You know, is this saying when you score a goal? Back of the net. <laughs> but she and she was sitting there in the in the thing, and while well, you can't see this, she was patting the back of her neck with her hand. And we're like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "You know, back of the neck, back <laughs> of the neck, net, net." Do you saw the ball going to the back of the net? Yeah. So, <laughs> she was oblivious to this for months, and we didn't even realize at first. She'd been saying it for ages. <laughs> Our dad's told us a story like that. There was some person in the studio with them with a bunch of musicians, and she was really trying to fit in. And it was yeah. the 60s, and everyone was saying far out. And that, and she, like every second word of hers was, oh, that's far out, man. That's so far yeah. out. That snare drum sound you're getting so far out. And eventually all the musicians got like so tired of this kind of trying too hard that they started telling her that the new phrase that they were saying in London at the time was far east. Like, <laughs> So if something's really cool, you say it's far east. And she, sure enough, adopted that phrase for the rest of the week. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, so um, we have this segment, What's It Like to Be in a Band with Your Brothers? Um, you have toured with many brother bands. Yeah, uh, I've toured with us. Think, yeah. Jet, Jet has a couple brothers in it, and you guys also, mm-hmm. who did you tour with? They're like the most famous brothers ever. Oh, well, we, yeah, Jet opened for Oasis in 05, so that was a Brothers, brothers and Brothers band. And this, I don't know why. Kings of Leon opened for Jet, right? Or toured uh, with Jet. The music. The music, yeah. Oh, with King. The, the oh. music was had Kings of Leon open for us. Okay. Um, and then before that, I worked with uh, who's the other band that was brothers as well? Bevy Clyro's got two brothers in it. Yeah, yeah twin brothers. So yeah, I don't know what it is. I seem to end up in 
<laughs> bands with brothers. I don't know. I don't know why, but well, that is kind of funny that uh, the Kings of Leon thing. What was it? Probably ten, twelve years ago that you you well, were two, working two, with the band, the British band called the Music. Two thousand three. Two thousand three. Jeez. Yeah. So that was about when Kings of Leon was sort of. They um, had they had released. Uh, Molly's Chambers EP. Okay. So it was before their big breakout. They yeah, were before op- Youth and Young Manhood. Yeah. So they were opening up for the band that you were touring. And so well, they we had a lot of... We were on Lollapalooza together. We were on the same stage together. <laughs> and like on the second stage at you know, noon in the, in the parking lot, boiling hot, getting cooked alive. And uh, there were these four little dudes from... Because Matt was like what, 16 or 17 at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> and... Uh, we taught them how to play football in the car park. Not hand-egg football. Um, <laughs> and all this time, we're going, you should come and play some shows with us. And like, who the hell are you guys? You're just four little kids from Northern England. Like, no, no, but we've sold a bunch of shows out in the UK. You should come home for us. Nah, nah, no, we're going to do that. And lo and behold, they did. And we'd sold. It was uh, Bridlington Spa and somebody else. Blackpool, Empress Ballroom. Huh. Two classic Stone Roses gigs that had been shut down since then, and they came out and home for us. They're like, "Oh shit, you sold these shows out!" Like, we told you. Jeez, yeah, so that's when I mean, because the Kings of Leon became much bigger in Europe and the UK, yeah, well before they became. Yeah, it was sometime, in the US. sometime shortly after that. Yeah. So I don't know whether it was the shows that we did that really sparked that canon or something around that, but it was yeah. right around that, you know, someone who's a bigger fan of those. So fast forward, uh, what? 11 years later and we're opening for the Kings of Leon so you see all the, some of the same crew guys well and that was it I mean like you know Brent was still there Nacho's there I mean I remember Nacho falling over because he couldn't play football at all it was crap at it <laughs> that was how I met my wife was those guys actually the Kings of Leon or, yeah. or, oh was at a festival or something it was or? at Lollapalooza Anna Meek was working for in Catholic. Chicago no no it was been at Lollapalooza toured Oh, it was the last she, year that Lollapalooza toured. So we actually met in cricket pavilions, of all things. She was working at Capitol Records and living in LA after going to USC. And we were on tour. We'd come from Chicago all the way around the Horseshoe, and we were now in Phoenix on our way up to San Francisco. Um, and uh, they were in the parking lot. We were all in the parking lot waiting for bus call. And um, Kings of Leon were parked next to us, as usual, because we were always on the same stage. We were playing football in the car park. And uh, she came over with her friend Stephanie, who lives down the street, worked at Capitol as well, and she thought they were the band Rooney. <laughs> and she's like, oh man, I love that band. And I was like, go, on, go and get the CD and we'll go and get it signed. So she went up and asked them, I was like, do you mind if you sign our CD for us? Like, of course, guys. <laughs> so they went back to the van and came back with this Rooney CD and handed it over. And I can't remember if it was Caleb or someone was like, you've no idea who we are, do you? And she was embarrassed and ran away. And my wife was just stood there, well, she wasn't my wife at the time. This girl, poor girl was standing there left as her mate ran off into the distance. She's like, eh, that was a bit uncomfortable. And we just hit off, started talking. So we never talked about that because everyone, you know, everyone knows you're Scottish, obviously, but the yeah. fact that you live in Phoenix. Yeah, and, yeah. and that you're the part owner of the the Rogue Bar there in South mm. Scottsdale, so um, so that so kind of brings me, it so, whole, so full circle. Anamik was Anamik's friend was a big fan, or Anamik was a big fan of Rooney. Our friend was a big fan. Of, Rooney was a big fan of Kings of Leon. Oh, okay, so so her friend thought thought the Kings of Leon were Rooney, so yeah. they took a Rooney CD onto their bus to yep. have him sign it. Like this is not okay. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, they'd already asked if she could if they would sign it, and they said yeah. So she went back to the van to get the disc and come back, and then they realized that she was complete. So it was like she had like a good thirty minutes to realize, even when she went back and got the CD and saw the pictures of the dudes that weren't those dudes. But you know, we've signed a couple other band CDs. Like it happens to everybody. Like they think you're someone, or they want to believe you are, and you just sign them. 
write something insulting. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Kings of Leon were tough kids to talk to back then. So, you know, I'm sure they were... They, I don't think they would have signed somebody else's CD. Yeah. I think the most embarrassing signing thing you could do is is think somebody's asking you to sign something or take a picture when they're not. They're just like... Because you're in that... You're in mo- you're in automatic <laughs> mode. You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're signing board or taking pictures or whatever. And then somebody... Will be you will happen to ask you for directions or something like I've, <laughs> outside a venue and you're like, <laughs> and I've gone and I've just like totally embarrassed myself. Yeah, Billy Connolly's got a great one of them where he's walking down the street and a guy throws a pound in a cup and the guy's like bastards, he's having a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Some guy said, "What are you doing?" I think I like put my arm around him to get to do a selfie, and I said, "Never mind," <laughs> and just walked That's away. Well, uh, you know, it's funny, like. We were in South Africa playing Joburg Day, and David Hasselhoff was there (laughs) for some reason. So the story is this. There's this ridiculous nightclub in South Africa in Johannesburg that opened right after Avatar, and it was an Avatar. two years after Avatar. Oh, sorry. It was late. Yeah. An (laughs) Avatar-themed nightclub called Avastar. Amazing. And they had paid David Hasselhoff, obviously, a fortune to come be a guest there and just hang out you know for the celebrity status and then sure. he also was going to do a song at this festival we were playing and he had a bit of this thing where you're talking about where can you imagine being David Hasselhoff where you're like one of the most recognized faces and names ever and he was just walking around and he knows everyone knows who he is so it puts him in this weird position I'm not trying to say he, he seems like a bit of a weirdo but yeah. like you just constantly know everyone is looking at you so you have this kind of like smiling hey hey how's it going you're looking at me yeah I can sign this sure. and it's not really his fault because everyone's just looking at him like going what are you that is the half yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it would be a funny yeah. prank to go down to Venice Beach and you know how like every 10 steps someone's trying to give you a CD or yeah. give you something you should just have a pen and, <laughs> and sign their CD <laughs> and give it back to <laughs> that's great there was some performance artist who was a who had a random person followed around by paparazzi and then you know there was like one of those pop-up yeah. acting things where they had 50 people pretending this person was famous and they would just get strangers in in the street like asking for selfies they had no idea who the person was they just wanted a picture with this famous person i was thinking that'd be cool if like lemmings all, walking off a if all of us <laughs> ordered, an, uh, ordered an uber black suvs like six of us mm-hmm. to the same spot and then just pulled off like we were driving around like the president oh, and those, those <laughs> six are, black SUVs everywhere we went like Migos Migos like, had six uh, like every time you land at LAX and those other yeah. dudes are on the plane with us huh? yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd get noticed very quickly yeah um, alright so from, from from very non-deep thoughts to relatively non-deep thoughts of the final <laughs> segment uh, that we have every week um, who brought it up someone Jesse said you wanted to talk about the yeah, uh, Danny sent a Danny sent a link for a documentary on the pyramids. I'm looking for because there's like twelve thousand Egypt documentaries on oh, YouTube, yeah. so mm-hmm. I want to find the right one. This uh, one is called Secrets of the Egyptian Pyramids. HD, HD, HD. Yeah. yeah. So it's <laughs> we we watch this documentary. It's a legitimate documentary because you know there's a lot of them, and they're like. They they you know say this about the pyramids and they go yeah. aliens like right away you right, know it's right. it's a they are very kind of far fetched but this one is a very good documentary it's about all the hidden knowledge inside the structure of the pyramids mm-hmm. you know mathematical stuff basically the proportions of the pyramids the way they're facing all this kind of um, information that is just unreal it's you know these quote experts on egypt are ba- have been chalking it up to coincidence for and saying that the ancient egyptians didn't have this knowledge 
um, and this documentary kind of picks that apart. And I mean, I don't think that they're you know they yes they're I think maybe it's both you know maybe the ancient Egyptians didn't have that knowledge because the the explanation that you know makes sense to me which is a pop- more popular idea now especially because of Graham Hancock and his ideas about ancient civilizations and all that is that there was a worldwide civilization that preceded these ancient civilizations yeah a pre-existing civilization that was much more advanced than anybody gives humans credit for at that time I mean that's you know whatever conclusion you draw from the documentary is it's still sort of unanswered but I haven't uh, it, seen it so I mean what are the, what are some of the things well, I've that the astronomical up. alignments you know the, the the fact that they tracked stars so well they and, tracked a cycle a star cycle um that is a 26,000 year star cycle um, and the pyramids and the uh, mathematical the relationships of the pyramids and the sphinx and which uh, and how it aligns with and that. how it aligns with that it tracks this like a clock a twenty six thousand year old cycle and that's just one of the things that they explain in the documentary yeah, which it also ties in with the star signs and stuff in Horus in, in that mm. respect too yeah because the there's four houses the four yeah the the I don't which Leo, which yeah. Aries uh, Taurus and Taurus the precision that the Great Pyramid was built with, I mean, it's down to the centimeter, practically. No, if, millimeter. If it, yeah, if it was off by a millimeter or a centimeter. And this, is, this thing is giant, you know. It's, like, you could fit six foot, um, football fields in the base of the pyramid, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. I, I watched a pr- another documentary with the wife a couple of weeks ago, uh, which was along the similar lines, but it wasn't all aliens, too. But it had some similar numbers like that, too. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the, the way that they, they – the line that that thing is on – I think it's completely on the meridian or whatever it happens to be on, or the meridian they have at the time. Like, even building that in current, with current tools would be difficult. Yeah. You know? No, and, yeah. and so they, they, this documentary goes into other sites of pyramids and other um, ancient structures that you know, are still unexplained, these giant stone structures that were carved or sculpted around the world in different places, different countries, different continents. You know, it goes all the way to Easter Island. Um, there are all these monuments that are in a line around the globe that um is to this day unexplained you know and and they go into how uh basically this 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 quote equator that these things are built on you know points to the magnetic pole of the earth as opposed to like our north pole you know the actual magnetic pole of it so it's basically is Showing that these ancient civilizations, somewhere along the line, they had knowledge of mathematics, a, of astronomy. Understanding it than, than we do currently, it would appear. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, for me, uh, I, I don't, I don't know why certain traditional explanations, like why do they need to stick to the twenty-year time period to build the pyramid? You, yeah, I think it, it relates to the insistence that it's only a tomb and that it didn't serve any other purpose. So once you have a, a premise, which you, you, if you start with a premise and you try to make everything fit into that premise, and I think this idea that it was just purely this egoistic tomb for this pharaoh, it's, it diminishes what it potentially was. Um, well, it's interesting that you see this kind of happen in all fields of life, that the ego is just can't be removed from anything. Mm. Yeah, and my ego is attached to the yeah, alternate explanations, yeah. But you just see it so clearly that something that should theoretically just be discussed openly from all sides and i know it's on both sides because like the alien people like are equally as attached to their alien ideas but it's weird to see it forgetting even archaeology where you have like people that are 
like vehemently attached to certain string theory ideas or whatever. Like it's yeah. like it's a religion, you know. Like yeah, yeah. Well, we were just watching Blue Planet too. It's another thing where you see people who are attached to uh, the levels of consciousness that animals are capable of, and then every it feels like every month they discover that. And you know, an octopus is far more intelligent than we thought it was. Or dolphins recognize themselves in a mirror before humans do. Or you know, just just constant underestimation. I think that this this idea that you need proof is a valid idea, but it shouldn't lead to the opposite of proof, which is a preconception. Can well, it's we also talk such about an anthro- fa- anthropocentric yes, I- yeah, idea is, that of you course know. we're obsessed with ourselves. Yeah. Can we talk about the fact that dolphins are buying mirrors in the first place? <laughs> yeah. Narcissistic hey, pricks. Their makeup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, have you, you've never been to Egypt, right? No, I haven't actually I been to probably check Africa that. yet now. Well, one of the few places I haven't. Yeah. I mean, this this documentary is entirely worth watching. It's a li- like the style and the sort of editing techniques. It's a bit. It's a little bit dated. Even you know, if you some- think you've seen it all before, if you know all the answers about that stuff, go watch it again because it turned me on. You have a whole bunch of things that I didn't, I didn't realize that the meridian that went through Easter Island and Machu Picchu and Giza was all the same. I didn't realize they were all on one course. Yeah, so that's just insanity. I guess it also just brings up the question of what they that what was that culture interested in. Because we've had one expression of technology and interest through mm-hmm. our you know, modern humans, or let's say the last 2,000 years, where it's evolved to now, we're computer-obsessed and algorithm-obsessed. And it's, but it's just one way, potentially, that a civilization could have uh, evolved you know, in terms of their technology. Perhaps there's an entirely maybe, different paradigm that we can't imagine. But even with us being mad on computers at the moment, maybe they'd already done that and went beyond it. Yes. Yeah. you know, analog is still better in some respects, you know? Maybe, <laughs> yeah. So of maybe, course, maybe they went so far into the, the analog. Well, this, you know, if Dune, it, you know? the premise of Dune, the book, I thought it was so amazing, was that he, in order to future-proof his, uh, his sci-fi book, which takes place in the future, mm. civilization has already uh, achieved, uh, had a machine revolution that they had to shut down so then they banned certain technologies. Mm-hmm. So this guy wrote the book in the 50s, Frank Herbert, and he, the book is still an amazing sci-fi novel that holds up because he didn't have to deal with the fact that his futuristic predictions were mm-hmm. proven wrong, you know? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's a ref- maybe, maybe that idea came from reality. Maybe uh, you maybe know the Terminator already happened. Linda Hamilton had yeah. saved the world twenty thousand years. That ago is one of the theories as to why we're not yeah. in touch with aliens. Uh, well, even though we may be, um, is that intelligent life destroys itself. You know that that may. I mean, God, we're doing a really good job of it so far. So <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Well, yeah, I think that the one of the really interesting things I only kind of stepped in halfway through the documentary and saw it but was that the um, tracking of this 26,000 year cycle of these significant stars in our in the uh, the solar system basically no in the the galaxy galaxy, (laughs) not solar system in the galaxy and um, they only place the pyramids and the building of the pyramids and and, uh, the sphinx and that civilization what 12 to 15 not even uh, years old. Yeah. So the fact that they had been tracking something that's twice as long as that they claim that their civilization has been around is really mind-bottling. <laughs> but it's yeah. also it's crazy because ball. so much is based on presumptions that are changing constantly. Like every couple of years, it seems like there's a new moving of when modern humans mm. arose mm. by like 
20,000 years, 100,000 years, massive change, you know, so it, it opens up the possibility of many numbers Tijuana, of things yeah. happening. Then just a couple of months ago, they discovered we were 40,000 years wrong again. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Mm. Yes, well, the which that, isn't well, an insignificant that, number that is contentious, but that was a legitimate. I think it was in Nature or something that that humans existed 120 thousand years ago in on the west coast, or 120 thousand years earlier than they previously that thought yeah. on the west coast of, uh, of America. Of America, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the status of very simple. Some, some, some of them still live in Beverly Hills, <laughs> <laughs> and they also found that uh, there were early early hominids. Um, as far back as we've uh, discovered them in Africa, in Asia as well, mm-hmm. that they're they're trying to verify now. So it's, right, you know, human movements and migrations are being all thrown yeah. out of whack. Like when agriculture happened, is is they keep pushing that back way further. I mean, dog DNA diverted from wolves 120,000 years ago, not 20,000 years ago, and the idea that dogs came from wolves is also common misconception they had a common ancestor a common an ancient wolf so uh, yeah it seems like humans are just older that's an easy idea for me to accept yeah it's just funny how we can't seem to expand the analogy and the problem we have with like with the current obsession with fake news and the inability for an idea to just remain what it started off as hmm. and then you try and think about what could be lost in translation across 10,000 years, 100,000 years. Yeah. Like, it's just impossible to imagine really anything that would happen, even within the accepted history of isn't, Egypt, you know, and Isn't all that one of, the biggest, one of the biggest things we've got to deal with in the, in the world today is the nuclear waste problem? Was it a size of a football field and four feet tall or four inches tall? I can't remember how much it is now, but either way, it's not getting smaller. And the problem that they have is where to store it and how to label it. Because, you know, you can put the sign of a right. human with, well, the biohazard of the radioactive symbol. Is that going to translate 200 years or, mm. you know, 2,000 years in the future? No. And that stuff's going to stay active for tens of thousands of years. It will right, kill yeah. people for a long, long time. So how do you express the, the, the if you get close to this, you're probably going to die? You're, I guess you're trying to come up with some kind of language that transcends, transcends time. language and time. The yeah. Close and Encounters is a good... Uh, thing you know like when in close encounters originally it was the, the aliens would communicate via mathematics and i think they i think spielberg changed it to music to make it to give it a human touch you know right that and that was one of the theories of this documentary is that the the alignment of the pyramids and the building of it wasn't purely just for the um ego of the the pharaoh you know as a tomb or for their own civilization it was for a message for the future that this twenty six thousand year old cycle aligned with certain cataclysms on earth mm-hmm. um and that they were trying to send a message you know basically into the future warning yeah. future civilizations about this cycle It'd be weird to, i mean if twelve thousand years from now what first of all what would actually be left if there if civilization was to kind of end right now you know some kind of big war or massive uh, yellowstone erupts what would be left in 12,000 years there was a show about that i think like basically idiocracy how quickly watch, watch idiocracy i think that's probably the most no, no, i think accurate. they were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think i think mcdonald's hamburgers would still be going yeah but i mean when they get when they went through it like most buildings would be gone like there's very yeah, few yeah. things that actually lost that don't get eroded. Right. Yeah, the that thing quickly. that would last the longest of anything in America supposedly would be the New Jersey boardwalk because it's a specific type of wood that would outlast any type of concrete. So just think what um, future really? generations would yeah. think about oh, it if that's yeah. all that was left is the New Jersey <laughs> <laughs> boardwalk. No Jersey Shore. Yeah. Well, I, well, I was going to make some sort of parallel point, which is that obviously the the people who actually have to do all this work they have to hold themselves to rigorous standards, but like. 
in a uh, in like cryptocurrencies going on right now. A lot of them don't have any use cases, but nev- speculation is super useful to the process. Speculation serves a really important role, and I think that speculation serves that role in ideas as well. It, that you need a portion of the population who's willing to not be as rigorous, so that you can be open to something undiscovered. You know. Well, I mean, let's leave it at this. If you watch this documentary and you come away thinking uh, that it's just a coincidence and that they built these pyramids with, you know, <laughs> ropes and uh, copper yeah, sl- chisels. Slaves, slaves built these yeah, pyramids. Yeah. Then I, I can't talk to you. Let's just, you know, <laughs> let's move on. We'll go our separate I, ways. Isn't there a mathematician that says something even in that docker that there is absolutely no way that this could ever be a possible set of circumstances? Yeah. It's not, it's not coincidental at all. No. Like, I mean, there are coincidences, but this many in this succession is impossible. In terms of people, imagine now people are just putting themselves on the line for ideas. Uh, there was another documentary we watched about Russia and Catherine uh, the Great, their, her, their leader, uh, inoculated herself with one of like the earliest kind of vaccines. Hmm. And the country thought there was a conspiracy going on at the time that, that she was going to try poison people with this vaccine. So she did it to herself first, not knowing that it would work. Talk about. <laughs> Wait, your, so what did she inoculate herself? I'm trying with? to find out what um, what the inoculation was for. I th- and why did she do it? Because she proved the, that it worked. She knew that she people, had the concept of a vaccination. Yeah, you know, she, uh, her doctors had brought up the idea of a vaccination, and the idea wasn't being accepted. And and uh, before a war or something like that, I, I need to get yeah, the that, details. I, I, she she, yeah, she, she that knew up, that I, like um, what? Oh, no, go ahead. She knew that there was a the, the risk of disease taking Russia over, so she inoculated herself first before then popularizing the idea. Yeah, there's a lot. There's been some people that have been crazy in that way. I don't mean crazy in a bad way, like the Marie Pierre and Marie Curie, like the kind of crazy things they've done in the pursuit of just knowledge and understanding that ends up, you know, either saving or changing the world dramatically. There's a movie that I watched. <clears throat> excuse me, a movie I watched last year, I think, and about. Some kid that invented, uh, I can't remember what the movie was, and, it, and he invented some cleaning agent, some dish soap or laundry soap that was safe to eat. And he, and the movie was about him trying to sell it to Costco and whatnot, and like his trying to get his thing off the ground. I don't know if that's what the movie was about. Maybe that was a subplot. But um, and watching what's going on today with kids eating laundry detergent like knobs like why didn't that guy make that you know everybody's always jumped on the thing trying out themselves and I think the way the guy sold it to Costco was he drank his laundry soap and didn't die (laughs) (laughs) and have any one of the other people drink theirs and see how they're doing in a couple hours time you know and this guy's like this is all natural you can it was fucking smallpox that she did oh was it yeah and before Jenner, the person who's, who's uh, that's attributed to, well, he, he used uh, cowpox, but she did it with a weak version of smallpox and gave it to herself and her son. That, that's, that's ballsy. That, that's, that's, that's standing by your invention, that is. Yeah, <laughs> that's putting yourself on the line. <clears throat> and that's hmm. the kind of risk takers we aren't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm putting my finger in electrical sockets every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Just so we don't get shocked on stage. Well, I mean... Like clearly, Trump has tested something on himself to, you know, as far as like skin tanning. Like he's, <laughs> it's for a noble cause, you know, to show that this is safe and you can live well into your seventies or whatever he is. Dorito <laughs> dust. <laughs> Dorito <laughs> dust. Yeah. 
All right, so why don't we wrap it up there before we continue rambling. We'll just continue rambling off uh, the microphone. Thanks for listening. Uh, Make sure that you are telling your friends about this podcast. If you like it, tell your friends, your parents, your coworkers, everyone to have a listen to it, and we'll keep doing them. And then head to congress.com slash podcast to follow along with uh, this week's episode and see all the links and pictures and everything we're talking about. Mix, 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 mix. <laughs> mixer. Mick, mix. thanks for coming on. Really love talking with you and always having you around here. Mm. Thank you. Thank you.